Good morning, everyone. It is really good to see you today. I hope that you're excited about our time of fellowship. I was in the gymnasium just a few moments before the service started and just wanted to check up on a couple things and I could smell there, there's um, crock pots all over the gym plugged in and the smell was fantastic. So I will make sure that I'm as quick as possible so that we can get over and have lunch as quickly as we can. No, I'm kidding, of course. In fact, I'm going to keep you here a little bit longer now that I have your attention and now you're waiting for food. But tonight, today we're going to be looking at a passage in 2 Kings chapter 6. This is one of my, my favorite passages in all of Scripture as we look at uh, one of the miracles of the prophet Elisha and something so simple but something that I find so profound. Uh, 2 Kings chapter 6, we'll be looking at verses 8 through 17 and a sermon that I've titled, Seeing what was always there. Seeing what was always there. Now this may seem like a rather obvious question and probably every single one in this room has been through this, but how many of you have ever had an eye exam before? Dr. Cowie, you better put your hand up. If you've ever had an eye exam, you know what it is to see what was always there. Maybe you couldn't see it at first, but you eventually get to see what was always there. The eye doctor usually would show you a chart on the wall with an arrangement of different letters and ask you to read a specific line of those letters uh, looking through different lenses. And then if you remember what it's like, they, they press your face up against this uh, contraption that has all these different lenses that they swap out and they'll go one eye at a time and change one lens at a time and they'll say, okay, is it clear now or now? And then they'll swap another lens and, you know, based on all the different lenses that they switch out, they'll try and make sure that you can see the letters that you need to see as clearly as possible so that they can get you glasses or fit you for lenses uh, as, as, as clearly as possible. And as we look at this 13th miracle, here in the life and ministry of the prophet Elisha, we will see God bring clear vision to Elisha's servant, enabling him to see what was always there, like the chart that was on the wall in the eye doctor's room. He is going to allow you to see it. He's going to be changing lenses, if you want to look at it that way, so that he sees what has always been there. The king of Syria... If you remember what was going on here this morning, and our, our passage that we're going to be looking at, and what we've looked at over the course of this series, we, we move from Elisha ministering to the sons of the prophets, who he was ministering to in the first seven verses of chapter 6 here in 2 Kings, to now offering help to the king of Israel. Now, if you can remember, we talked about this at the beginning of chapter 5 with Syria being basically the world power at this time. And the king of Syria is going to be once again in our passage this morning deciding to wage war against Israel. Now, God had used the nation of Syria to bring judgment to Israel for their rebellion, for their idolatry, for just their rejection of God in general. And Ben-Hadad, the king of Syria... He, in our passage this morning, was thirsty for more blood, and he moved to war against Israel once again. Following the advice of his military counselors, he decided to set a coalition of men, of soldiers, to camp in a certain place where he was certain that the king of Israel, a man by the name of Jehoram, would pass often by expecting to be able to trap him and catch him unexpectedly. 
Well, God would reveal all of these plans to his prophet Elisha, and accordingly, Elisha would go ahead and warn King Jehoram about these plans. And by following Elisha's advice, Jehoram would be spared. And from what we know thus far of King Jehoram, he was not a good king. We were introduced to him back in 2 Kings chapter 3 as he, along with Jehoshaphat and the king of Edom, approached Elisha seeking his help as their armies were on the verge of death, lacking water in the wilderness as they were going up to battle against the Moabites. And knowing King Jehoram's wickedness, Elisha spoke to him in verse number 14. And this is back in 2 Kings chapter 3. And listen to what it says as these three kings approached the prophet Elisha seeking his help to help and save the armies of these three nations in order to prevent them from dying. In verse 14, there in 2 Kings chapter 3, it says, And Elisha said, As the Lord of hosts liveth, before whom I stand, surely were it not that I regard the presence of Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, I would not look toward thee, nor see thee. This is Elisha the prophet speaking to the king of Israel, Jehoram. He says, I don't even want to be in the same room with you, let alone even look at you. This is how wicked you are. You have nothing to do with God except when it's convenient to you. And now you seek my help. And he says, were it not for Jehoshaphat, who is a godly man, I wouldn't even be in the same room with you. So he, he has very strong feelings towards the king of Israel. Elisha made it clear that he did not care for Jehoram. But he respected Jehoshaphat enough to give the kings what they were seeking. We see a great miracle take place there in 2 Kings chapter 3 as water is provided out of absolutely incredible means. Two chapters later, when the king of Syria sent a letter to the king of Israel, once again, King Jehoram, this is when Naaman was trying to seek curing it, uh, from his leprosy. He sent a letter, the king, the king of Syria did, to King uh, Jehoram in Israel as, um, and so that he would um, be able to do something to bring healing to Naaman. And he asked Naaman to be healed, and Elisha intervened because King Jehoram was out of his sorts trying to figure out what in the world was going to be done because he knew that he wasn't God and couldn't do anything to help out Naaman. And Elisha heard about it, intervened, and instructed that King Jehoram send Naaman to him so that he would know that there was a God there in Israel. And we know the story there in 2 Kings chapter 5. Naaman is healed. Going back home, he is saved, and changed. He's a brand new man as God brought healing to him, not just physically, but spiritually. And here in our passage, Elisha will once again help King Jehoram, an evil man, as Elisha was embracing the notion of Galatians chapter 6 and verse number 10, which states, as we have therefore opportunity, let us do good unto all men, especially unto them who are of the household of faith. Elisha here was doing good to all men. He was helping out someone that was clearly in need when he was helping Jehoram, like every believer should do for the people that God puts in our lives. So as we take a closer look here at Elisha's 13th miracle, I want you to notice, first of all, the connection of the miracle. The connection of the miracle. Notice what we read here in verse number 8 of 2 Kings chapter number 6. 2 Kings 6, verse number 8. The Bible says, Then the king of Syria warred against Israel and took counsel with his servants, saying, in such and such a place shall be my camp. Now, last week, we learned about conjunctions. Remember? Conjunctions, right? We learned about conjunctions because chapter 6, verse number 1, begins with the word and, which is a conjunction. 
And this morning, we're notice the first word in verse number eight is the word then. Then. This word is tying together what is about to be said with something that was previously said. Now, in this case, the connection is not so much with the first seven verses of chapter six, where we saw Elisha ministering to the sons of the prophets, but where chapter five ended. So chapter five ended with uh, Naaman, who was the captain of the host of the armies of Syria, miraculously being healed from his leprosy. And it ended with him returning to Syria and Elisha's servant Gehazi being smitten with the leprosy that Naaman had because of his own lies, trying to seek advancement and get lucre, get... Uh, get money, get possessions through lying and deceptive means. And from that miraculous encounter where Naaman had the prophet of God uh, in Israel, we move to this passage which begins, it says, Then the king of Syria warred against Israel. After Naaman is healed, then the king of Syria warred against Israel. The captain of the host of the king of Syria is miraculously healed by the God of Israel. And shortly thereafter, the king of Syria decides to go to war with Israel. Does this make sense to anybody? How many of you are looking at this passage and thinking, well, something doesn't add up here? What sense does this make where the king of Syria just got a tremendous benefit as his captain, as the general of his armies, goes to Israel and is miraculously healed by the God of Israel, returns, and now the king of Syria gets the bright idea, let's go to war with these people whose God just helped us out immensely. Something doesn't add up. Something doesn't seem to make sense based on what we see here. At the beginning of 2 Kings chapter 5, the king of Syria sent a letter to Naaman, with Naaman, to deliver to the king of Israel, where he's offering all sorts of gold and silver and garments. All of this in exchange for what they hoped would be Naaman's healing. But now his intention is to go to war against these people. It's mind-boggling that so soon after his general has been miraculously healed in Israel by the God of Israel, that he would set his sights now on invading Israel. Now this just goes to show how wicked this man was, the king of Syria, and how terrible it is to recompense evil for good. Now we know that it is bad enough to recompense evil for evil, for vengeance belongs to the Lord, but to return evil for good is a sin that is twice as bad. And yet, how often have we treated God this way? How often do we receive the good that we have from God and yet we complain against Him or we murmur or we argue that what He should have done should have been different or we question His methods or question His means? We do this all the time, don't we? God blesses us or God does something for us and maybe it wasn't exactly the way that we anticipated and then we start looking to heaven and saying, God, well, when are you going to deliver? When are you going to answer this request? When are you going to help me out in this endeavor? And here we end up recompensing evil for good. And I want you to notice what it says in verse number 8 again. I know we just looked at this, but notice what it says again. It says, Then the king of Syria warred against Israel and took counsel with his servants, saying, In such and such a place shall be my camp. Human nature doesn't change generation to generation. People come up with all sorts of reasons to go to war with others. War is nothing new. We've just invented new ways of going about it. And listen to what we read. This is a lengthy passage, but not too lengthy. In Romans chapter 3, verses 10 through 17. Romans 3, verses 10 through 17. The Bible says, As it is written, There is none righteous, no, not one. 
There is none that understandeth. There is none that seeketh after God. They are all gone out of the way. They are together become unprofitable. There is none that doeth good. No, not one. Their throat is an open sepulcher. With their tongues they have used deceit. The poison of asps is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their ways, and the way of peace have they not known. This is what God has to say about the entire human race. There is none good, not even one. There is none that is seeking after God, the Bible says. We are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery, he says, are in our ways, and we know not the way of peace. Now, based on what we read in 2 Kings chapter 6, there is no hint that Ben-Hadad had been provoked by Israel in any sort of way. Him deciding to wage war against Israel wasn't because he was retaliating for something that Israel had done. We have no inclination that that is the case. There's no, no, no one that has provoked him to do this. And we're led to believe that this war was being started simply because he's bloodthirsty. And again, all of this is happening on the heels of the miraculous healing of his general Naaman. Should this really surprise us though? I know I, I posed it as something that should shock us and surprise us, but should it really surprise us all that much? Considering what we're told in Ecclesiastes verses 8 and, and verse 11. Ecclesiastes chapter 8 and verse 11 says, The heart of the sons of men is fully set in them to do evil. The heart of the sons of men is fully set in them to do evil. And nothing short of the restraining hand of God can stop evil men from executing their wicked devices and their wicked desires. It didn't matter that the Lord had shown the king of Syria great kindness when he had shown great kindness to Naaman by healing him. Ben-Hadad, the king of Syria, was determined to give into the wickedness of his heart and go to war against Israel, who he thought he could conquer like that. And notice who he took counsel with in verse number 8. Again, then the king of Syria warred against Israel and took counsel with his servants. He didn't seek counsel of the Lord. Now you're thinking, well, obviously he didn't. They're not worshiping God in the land of Syria. But he didn't do this because he's a stranger to God. Now I, for one, am glad that Naaman is not mentioned at all here. I, for one, am glad that we read about Naaman being healed of his leprosy in chapter 5, that we read about him being saved in chapter 5, and he returns home to Syria, and he doesn't come up to the king of Syria and say, listen, we need to go to war against these people that have just brought me healing. I'm glad that he's not included in this group that is mentioned here in verse number 8 of 2 Kings chapter 6. I would hope that when Ben-Hadad spoke to his servants, that Naaman was the one voice that objected to going to war against Israel. But either way, the king of Syria decides that it is time to go to war against Israel. So this is the connection. But I want you to notice second, the occasion of the miracle. The occasion of the miracle. Look at now verse number 9. 2 Kings chapter 6 and verse number 9. And the man of God sent unto the king of Israel, saying, Beware that thou pass not such a place, for thither the Syrians are come down. I find this entire incident very surprising, based on the fact that Ben-Hadad, the king of Syria, seems to suffer from some memory loss 
as he fails to consider that the God of Israel is this incredibly powerful, almighty, all-knowing God. And he goes ahead and he makes all these plans thinking that he can trap the king of Israel without him being the wiser. The God of Israel has just done the miraculous. He has just done the impossible by bringing healing to a man that shouldn't have seen healing. And yet, the king of Israel, or the king of Syria rather, doesn't consider that the same all-powerful, all-capable, all-knowing God would now fight for the nation of Israel when he goes to war against them. He shouldn't have been going to the war, he shouldn't have been going to war against them in the first place based on the kindness that the prophet of God and God himself had shown Naaman. But he also shouldn't have gone to war based on how God had proven himself all-powerful. The only reason Naaman was in Israel in the first place was because every advancement that he tried, every treatment that he tried in Syria failed. And they're the world power. Nothing they could do to Naaman in Syria helped him one bit. So he had to go to an enemy that they've already conquered and brought captives back home from to get help. And it worked. The God of Israel proved himself all capable and all powerful to overcome even something that was overcomable, not overcomable, and that is the disease of leprosy. And yet with that supposedly and should be fresh on his mind, he continues to decide to go ahead and go to war against these people. How do you fail to consider the power of the enemy you're going up against, especially when this incident is unprovoked? Now, maybe you can justify it if you say that, well, yes, he's doing this only because Israel came and attacked him, and so he's just responding in retaliation. But that's not what's happening here. There is, no, there is, there, there, there is no, nothing that has been provoked. It would be one thing. If your enemy who was bigger and stronger than you was provoking you to go to war, but that's not what we see happening here at all. This was an unprompted and an unprovoked decision on the part of Ben-Hadad to go to war against Israel, and he failed to consider that Israel, though they were outnumbered, had the greatest advantage with God on their side. And as we will see, God is aware of every single thought of man and the desires and the intents of those who are opposed to him and those who are opposed to his people and he can easily bring them down to be nothing at all. And over, this, over the course of history, what we've noticed is that God's methods are varied all throughout his works of creation. On this specific occasion, God didn't employ the forces of nature as he's used on other occasions like he did when the Israelites were being chased by the armies of Pharaoh and as they were crossing the Red Sea. Nor did God lead the armies of Israel to just defeat the Syrians in battle. Instead, God led the prophet to warn the king of Israel and make the king believe him. God does not always employ the same means every single time. And I think we get discouraged sometimes when we don't see God working the same way in our lives as we've seen him maybe work in someone else's life or see, see him work the same way that he's worked in the same way in the past. We almost get it into our heads that if God is going to answer any of our requests, if he is going to meet any of our needs, that it must be done a specific way. And when God employs some other means, we tend to think that God has disregarded our personal situation. The fact that God has provided or brought deliverance to you in the past in a certain manner is no guarantee that God is going to follow the same course or use the same means today for what you're dealing with now. He certainly could. But it is often God's way to meet needs in a different way. And the purpose is that for us not to focus on the means, but to focus on the Lord himself. Because a lot of us get carried away that it needs to be a certain way and it needs to be a certain means that are used. And when it's not, we think that things aren't going the way that they should be. But look at 
what we see again in verse number nine. It says, and the man of God sent unto the king of Israel. So the prophet Elisha is sending to King Jehoram saying, beware that thou pass not such a place for thither the Syrians are come down. He's warning him. Elisha is referenced as the man of God here. Not by his name, Elisha, which as we previously indicated, remember what I said, this was usually the case when Elisha is referenced as the man of God, it was usually an indication that a miracle was about to take place. Elisha was now in his official position as the man of God as he's sending notice to the king of Israel, this message from God. Just prior to this, he was helping out some of his students recover an axe head that had fallen into the water. And now he is offering help once again to a wicked king, King Jehoram. What a tremendous lesson there is in this for us. Whatever gift, whatever ability that God has given to you, use it for the good of others. Use your gifts and talents for the good of others. One of the principal duties of a servant of God is to employ the spiritual knowledge that we have received to warn those that are lost. What a picture of God's mercy we see here in the warning both to sinners and to saints of impending danger. We should be so thankful to God when a man of God makes us aware of some impending danger that has caught us off guard. I don't think we realize how much we've been spared from when we've heeded the warnings from a faithful minister of Christ. It is at our peril and certainly to our certain loss if in our pride and in our own self-will that we disregard a clear warning from God when one of his servants gives us a timely caution to beware that thou not pass such a place. Prideful people don't like to be told what to do. But those who can set aside their pride, those who can heed the instructions from the word of God, will avoid many troubles. It may not always be the most flattering thing for you to set aside your pride, for you to set aside your self-esteem, and to acknowledge that someone else knows something about the situation that you don't. But it will prove invaluable when you yield yourself over to the will of God. God here was delivering the king of Israel, an ungodly man. He was delivering him from an ambush. And even though he was not keen on taking advice from the prophet Elisha, his life was ultimately spared. God gives each of us the same responsibility. He shows us the way that we can walk in, but then he leaves us the, he leaves us the decision to actually follow his advice. We can do things God's way and trust that it would be to our benefit, or we can keep our pride intact and do what we seem to be right in our own eyes. But when we disregard God's warning, you can guarantee that you're going to be accountable for everything that you get yourself into. When Elisha warned the king in verse number 9, the particular location, I don't know if you caught on that, is not named. He didn't say, avoid this particular location. Neither was it named in the previous verse when the king of Syria said, set up your camp here and this is where we'll try and attack. Even though we don't know the specific location, it would have been clear to King Jehoram where Elisha was speaking of. And I believe that there's a lesson in there for us to not know the specific location. All throughout scripture, we are warned that our adversary, the devil, lies in wait to deceive us. Now, in some cases, God's word identifies specific dangers that we should be on the lookout for. But in many cases, it is more of a general warning that we're given. We're told in Proverbs 4, verses 26 and 27. Proverbs 4, 26 and 27. The Bible says, Ponder the path of thy feet, and let all thy ways be established. 
Turn not to the right hand nor to the left. Remove thy foot from evil. We're also told in 1 Peter 5 and verse number 8. 1 Peter 5 and verse number 8. The Bible says, Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, as a roaring lion, walketh about seeking whom he may devour. And this is why it is so important for us to heed the instructions of Proverbs 4.26, to ponder the path of our feet, because we're not told specifically where the devil is walking about. He may be limited to being in one place at one time, but you can rest assured, not rest assured, but you can guarantee rather, that he is actively moving from one place to the next, seeking whom he may devour. He walketh about, the Bible says. He doesn't stick to one place, and so everyone can say, avoid this one place, because this is where the devil camps out. He doesn't camp out. He moves around so that no one is the wiser as to where to avoid. So even though we're not told the specific location here, it should be understood for us as believers as we make application to what it says here, to what we're dealing with today, that we need to be aware that we need to be pondering the path of our feet everywhere that we go because where that leads you, it may be straight into the camp of the devil who is seeking to destroy you or devour you. Be aware of possible ambushes. Thankfully, we see here that God has graciously made provision for the believer's security. And he prevents our enemy from completely destroying us. Whether that believer is tempted to give in to sin it is up to him to, to heed God's warning. But the pathway of escape has been provided to us by God. Now Satan is going to do everything he can to try and prevent a believer to regain that peace and to regain that joy that he should have for the entirety of his life here on earth. He's going to try to make that believer be as discouraged as possible for as long as he can. But God always provides a way for his children to come back to him, to have that fellowship restored to him, and for them to once again rejoice in the joy of their salvation. God does this for believers. But what we see here in this passage is that he's also doing this for an unbelieving and wicked King Jehoram. He is providing a way of escape for a man that doesn't deserve a way of escape. If anyone deserved what he had coming, it was King Jehoram. And God could have said, you know what, Elijah? Don't tell him this message. There's a message for you, but don't relay this to King Jehoram. Let him get ambushed. Let him get what he has coming for him. Because even though I'm not with the king of Syria, I'm going to use him to judge this wicked man. But he doesn't do that. He urges the man of God to deliver this message to an ungodly man, and the man is spared from this trouble. Notice what we read in verse number 10. It says, And the king of Israel sent to the place which the man of God told him and warned him of and saved himself there not once nor twice. Now here we, we see the king's skepticism, right? Elisha comes to him and he says, Listen, King Jehoram, you need to be aware because the king of Syria, Ben-Hadad, who doesn't like you, He's coming after you, and you need to avoid this specific location because when you least expect it, he's camped out, and his soldiers are there to ambush you. Now, King Jehoram had some respect for Elisha. And based on the fact that he didn't just ignore the warning altogether, but not enough to trust to take him at his word. So he has to go and investigate the matter for himself. He sends some spies out, to this location to see if there is some truth to what the man of God has said. 
Now, King Jehoram had no reason to doubt Elisha. Elisha has done nothing to ever set this man up in some sort of trap or to deceive him in any sort of capacity. Everything that Elisha has told him up to this point had come true. But the unbelief of this wicked man and wicked men in general is often very difficult to overcome. Now, may this serve as a lesson to all of us that the warnings of God's faithful servants should always be taken seriously. There are plenty of people who will pay close attention to warnings against physical and against temporal dangers, but will ignore the warnings against eternal dangers. In one way, you could look at King Jehoram's investigation as a good thing, that we shouldn't just follow any preacher's word blindly, but we should test his warnings and examine them against the truth of Scripture. If it doesn't line up with the Word of God, don't follow it. That's why I can't encourage you enough to come to church with your Bible, to open it up and to follow along, because I am fallible. I am not perfect. I strive to make sure that everything that I teach and preach lines up exactly with the Word of God. And I have told you, probably to the point ad nauseum, that if I say or teach anything that doesn't line up true with the Word of God, pick up stones, throw them at me, throw me out. I don't care if it's raining, wet, muddy, soggy outside, and I'm wearing a nice suit. Let it get dirty, because there's no reason for anyone to stand behind this pulpit and to teach anything that doesn't line up with the Word of God. There should be no place for it. No place for it whatsoever. Go home. Investigate it. See if it lines up with the word of God. And in some ways we see that there is a good thing done as far as investigation is concerned. And so he investigates. King Jehoram does. He investigates. Now we're told in, in 1 Thessalonians 5.21, it says, To prove all things, hold fast that which is good. And by doing so, we'll be able to corroborate what every preacher says. Now, once Jehoram sent out spies and was spared the warning, uh, spared by the warning, rather, of Elisha numerous times, notice how the king of Syria responds to this in verse number 11. So the king of Syria has set up a trap and it's failed every single time. Not once, not twice, numerous times it's failed. King Jehoram's been spared, spared over and over again. Notice what happens in verse number 11. It says, Therefore the heart of the king of Syria was sore troubled for this thing. And he called his servants and said unto them, Will ye not show me which of us is for the king of Israel? He calls all of his counselors together, everyone that he sought this wisdom from, that he's going to go to war against Israel. And he says, All right, which one of you is it that is a traitor? Because one of you is sharing our secrets that we're talking about here at our war table with the nation of Israel. And I'm going to find out now which one of you it is. It never once crosses his mind that the Lord was behind all of his failed attempts to attack Jehoram. Instead, he suspects that one of his own has betrayed him. Again, he's not thinking about the incredibly wonder-working power of God healing Naaman, once again being used to now reveal to Elisha all of his plans. And look at verse number 12. Notice what it says. Someone has some common sense in his war room. And one of his servants said, None, my lord, O king. But Elisha, the prophet that is in Israel, telleth the king of Israel the words that thou speakest in thy bedchamber. They have a secret weapon, O king. He knows everything that you're talking about, everything that we discuss around our war table, every plan that we come up with. He is two steps ahead of us. He knows where we're going to be, when we're going to be there. This is why we failed. None of us are traitors, he says. But they have a secret weapon that we can't match. Even unbelievers are not always ignorant of God's devices. 
In Romans 1, verses 19 and 20, the Bible tells us this. It says, because that which may be known of God is manifest in them. For God has showed it unto them. For the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Now the context there in Romans 1 is talking about something different, but we still understand the same idea that even unbelievers through nature and creation are aware through the conscience that God has given that God is all-powerful. That God is capable of doing everything. Again, being understood by the things that are made, even God's eternal power and Godhead. Unbelievers are aware of this. God has revealed himself and his power to all men so that no one can say they never knew about him. Now we also see in this how the spirituality and the power of a true servant of Christ is recognized even by his enemies. We don't know who this servant was that spoke up here in verse number 12. But it's quite possible that this one servant was one of the servants that traveled with Naaman. I like to think so. One of the servants that traveled with Naaman to Israel saw Naaman rise up from the waters of the Jordan River that seventh time, completely healed from that leprosy. Witnessing firsthand the miracle-working power of the God of Israel and seeing not just a physical change in Naaman, but a spiritual change in this man as well. I like to think that the servant that spoke up there in verse number 12 was one of those servants that was with Naaman. But still, there is no recognition of God here, no acknowledging that God has revealed their plans to the prophet in Israel. And notice number, number three. The location of the miracle. The location of the miracle. Look at verse number 13. Verse number 13 says, And he said, Go and spy where he is, that I may send and fetch him. And it was told him, saying, Behold, he is in Dothan. So this is now they're, they're hunting for Elisha, the prophet that is in Israel, who knows everything. They're going to go and find him. Dothan was this in the northeast portion of Samaria, just to the west of the Jordan River. Ben-Hadad, the king of Syria, was convinced that if he could capture the prophet, so he's failed in capturing the king of Israel, who has been warned by the prophet in Israel, of every time he tries to set up a snare and ambush for him, but he thinks now, well, maybe if I can trap the prophet. Are, are you guys seeing just how ridiculous this is? Because it's the prophet who keeps tipping off the king of where he's going to be trapped. So now he thinks, let me trap the prophet. You're not getting this. You should be laughing. Are you with me? You see how ridiculous this is? He's failed on numerous occasions to trap the king because the prophet keeps tipping the king off. What makes him think he's going to trap the prophet? The prophet's the one who's in tune. Okay, finally you're with me. The prophet's the one who finds out over and over and over again where the king of Syria is encamping his armies. So he says, oh, I've got it. I'm going to catch the prophet. How are you going to catch the prophet if he's the one who's knowing your plans from before you even put him into action? Again, not thinking about the God of Israel. Not thinking at all, apparently. 
But here he is. He's convinced that if he can capture the prophet, he's finally going to be successful in ambushing the king of Israel. Ben-Hadad refused to acknowledge that he wasn't fighting against the prophet, but against the God of Israel. God allowed him to have his own way up to this point so he might eventually realize that he is going up against a mountain. He's going up against a brick wall and be made to feel his own insufficiency. Now this verse goes to show the persistence of our adversary who refuses to accept that he's a defeated foe. Ben-Hadad stands no chance. No chance. If he had any sort of logic, he would have just waved the white flag and said, you know what, this is a foolish endeavor. Forgive me for trying to go against, go against you guys in war. He's a defeated foe, and so is our adversary, but that doesn't stop him from trying to come at us. This verse just goes to show how persistent he is. Just because we have victory over sin through the finished work of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ doesn't mean that Satan says, oh, I guess I'll just leave that guy alone. He is a real enemy. And he targets believers to make them as ineffective as possible for the cause of Christ. The devil is going to do everything he can to silence believers who are actively warning unbelievers of the eternal dangers that await them apart from Christ. The devil is actively working to discourage believers from personal evangelism, from soul winning, from leading them to believe that the gospel message is always going to fall upon deaf ears or that they're ill-equipped to be God's messengers in the first place or that there's going to be ample opportunity tomorrow to go and do what they feel like doing today. One of the greatest tactics of Satan is to convince believers that there is more time or a better time or a more convenient opportunity to do it. Because he's not telling you no, but he's saying, no, no, just, just, just wait a day. Just sit on it. Because tomorrow, the weather will be better. The opportunities will be more ample. You'll feel more refreshed, more relaxed, more aware of what needs to get done. You'll be better equipped. And then tomorrow comes around, and you don't get to what you set out to do. And you keep telling yourself, there'll be another time. There'll be another time. There'll be another time. And then he wins. He wins. Notice what we read in verse number 14. As much as the devil is going to do everything he can to prevent believers from being effective in witnessing, leaving the job for others, Notice what we see here in verse number 14. So we know that it's in Dothan. We know that this is where the prophet is. And in verse 14 says, Therefore sent he, so this is the king of Syria, Therefore sent he thither horses and chariots and a great host. And they came by night and compassed the city about. So Ben-Hadad figures out where Elisha is staying. And he sends this massive army to go and to surround the city. Now by this point, he realizes that Elisha is already capable of great things. And it's evident by the size of the host that he sends to capture one man that he knows this man means business, that he's capable of crazy things. He wasn't successful in outsmarting Elisha before this, but he figures he can overpower him. And it's interesting how the unrighteous become uneasy when their conscience begins to stir and they become convicted of their own wrongdoing and yet they do everything they can to silence their conscience, to suppress those convicting feelings, to uh, continue in their sinful ways. It would have been a good decision for Ben-Hadad to just give up at this point. 
except that he'd not be successful in any endeavor to go against the nation of Israel. But he keeps pressing forward. And remember, there's no reason to go to war in the first place. And even if his plans, even as we've seen his plans falling apart, he still determines that war is still the answer. Any sensible person would have accepted defeat and just called it a day. But Ben-Hadad opts, opts to surround the city of Dothan by night to capture the prophet. So this is the location, but notice fourth, the subject of the miracle. Because we haven't even seen the man who's going to be involved at the center of this miracle. Notice the subject of the miracle. Look at verse number 15. So the city is completely surrounded. Verse 15 says, When the servant of the man of God was risen early and gone forth, behold, an host compassed the city both with horses and chariots. And his servant said unto him, Alas, my master, how shall we do? So the subject of this miracle is the servant of the man of God, the servant of Elisha. Remember, when Elisha is referred to as the man of God, it's usually a sign that something miraculous is about to happen. Now this servant, who is the successor of Gehazi, was new to the service of the prophet, and this would be his very first lesson. One of the first lessons that a new believer learns is that they are so different from the world. And in many cases, they are hated by the world for their new life in Christ. And this is why discipleship is important because new believers can easily be discouraged when life gets increasingly difficult after being saved. For this reason, mature believers should lower your expectations for new believers while they're still young and they're still inexperienced because until they learn to walk by faith, and be undaunted by the difficulties that lay ahead of them, they are going to make mistakes and they're going to struggle. And notice again the scene that is before us here in verse number 15. It says, When the servant of the man of God was risen early and gone forth, behold, a host compassed the city both with horses and chariots, and his servant said unto him, Alas, my master, how shall we do? So Ben-Hadad's army has surrounded the city at night. This young servant has risen early, like he does probably every morning, steps out onto the porch to see this massive army surrounding him. Now, I have an idea of what this looked like. I have an idea that the man, you know, came outside, he sees that the paper is there on the ground, he picks it up, you know, he's opening the paper to see what the front page headlines are, and then he realizes that there's something in his peripheral that he hasn't seen immediately. And so he, he does one of these, if you've done this in the morning, where you're still kind of groggy a little bit, still waking up, you rub your eyes to make sure that what you're seeing is actually there, lowers his paper and looks up, and sure enough, there's a massive army, and it's all around him. And so from reading the, the front page news and getting a quick glance at the headlines, he is crying out to the prophet Elijah, saying, Alas, my master, what shall we do? We're done. We're doomed. We're trapped. We're surrounded all around us. That's how I see it going. This young man is terrified. This is not what he signed up for. This is not what serving the prophet of God was supposed to look like. Is this not, though, how each of us reacted in our early stages of salvation when problems first came up? Now, we're looking around and we're thinking, wait, wait a second here. I've been saved all of about five minutes and I'm already dealing with problems? Wasn't it supposed to be relatively smooth sailing? Wasn't it supposed to be, you know, that my problems would be taken care of? Why is it that it's not just problems, but seemingly insurmountable problems? Lord, what am I going to do? 
How many of us have cried that out before? We're in the right company. We're walking with the Lord. We're in the center of God's will. But then we wake up one morning and an unexpected problem hits us and leaves us nervous about the future and uncertain as to how we're now going to deal with this problem. I'm sure we've all had something come up like that where we can only see what's right in front of us. And we cannot see the different things that God is doing. In that moment of uncertainty, what we're doing is we're shutting God out of our view. It's like when you first stepped into that eye doctor's office and you tried to look at the chart on the wall without your lenses on or your contacts in. Oh, you can see that there is a chart there, but you really can't make out what it says. In that moment, we, re- we reveal just how weak our faith truly is. Even in the most mature believers, we will have moments like this where our faith is tested and shown to be lacking. So, you can take it easy on this young man here in 2 Kings chapter 6, and verse number 15. Relax a little bit. Because you've been there, every single one of us have, and maybe you're going to be there very shortly. I find it interesting how problems give us a real gauge to where our faith rests. When this young man sees the army of Syria around him, he becomes more frightened than an unbeliever. He's more frightened than an unbeliever. His self-confidence, his self-sufficiency are all completely shattered like that, instantaneously. He is all of a sudden aware of his complete and utter weakness. Alas, my master, how shall we do? We're done. There's no escaping this. And this is a good thing. This is a good thing to have your self-sufficiency and your confidence completely shattered. To be aware of your complete and utter weakness. This is a good thing because now he, as well as we, will be able to see where our strength really lies. You need to come to the end of yourself to see just what God is capable of. God allows trouble in our lives for the purpose of showing himself strong on our behalf. And that's what we're going to see here very shortly. But in order to do this, many times God has to bring us to the end of ourselves for us to see how desperately we need him, not just once a month, not just once a week, but moment by moment. You cannot last even a single moment of one day without God in your life. And he is allowing these problems to come into our lives for us to see just how dependent we are on him. Now, thankfully, the Lord's hand is never shortened that it cannot save. Neither is his ear heavy that it cannot hear whenever we call out for him for help. And notice in verse 16 how the prophet Elisha responds to the cries of this helpless young man. So the man, he comes out, he opens up the paper, he sees the headlines, but he sees this massive army in front of him and all around him. And he cries out to the prophet saying, help! Alas, my master, what, how shall we do? And notice the response of the prophet Elisha. And he answered, fear not. For they that be with us are more than they that be with them. For they that be with us are more than they that be with them. The man runs outside again. He says, hold on a second, because I must have missed something here. Because what I saw was only they that be against us, not they that be with us. And that's why I came crying to you saying, we're done. If I saw a second army out there that was larger and stronger and and mightier than the Syrians that were there, I wouldn't have come crying to you. 
Because the way I see it is he sees this massive army, runs back inside, is waking up the prophet Elisha saying, we are in need of help. Something is going wrong. And the way I see it is Elisha calmly gets up from bed, slides on his slippers, puts on his robe, and says, son, fear not. For they that be with us are more than they that be with us. That's it. Where's the solution? Where's the answer? Why aren't you calling upon God to bring an army? He says, it's already taken care of. Already taken care of. They that be with us are more than they that be with them. The young man was in such a panic when he woke up the prophet, fearing that they were absolutely doomed because he saw the massive host of the Syrians that had surrounded them. If there was a second army, he certainly wouldn't have cried out the way that he did. But he didn't see what was always there. What in the world was Elijah talking about? Well, the young man didn't see what was always there because there was another army that was indeed present. And Elisha was able to react to this situation calmly because he knew the truth of what we read in 1 John chapter 4 and verse number 4, which states this, Greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. Greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. And notice number 5, the means of the miracle. The means of the miracle. Look at verse number 17. And Elisha prayed and said, Lord, I pray thee, open his eyes that he may see. And the Lord opened the eyes of the young man and he saw. And behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire round about Elisha. Open his eyes that he may see. You know when the eye doctor puts that lens and you finally see, boom, that's it. I see it. Perfect. God said, Lord, put a new lens in front of this young man's eyes. Ask him if it's clear now. He knows the Syrian army is outside. And yet, Elisha is as cool as a cucumber. I wish I could have been there to see him pray this. I pray thee, open his eyes that he may see. This may be asking a lot, but who can remember the verse of the month from January? I'm asking you. Who can remember the verse of the month from January? I'll give you a hint. January and February were back-to-back verses in the Bible. Anyone? Isaiah 26, verse 3. I'll start you off. Thou wilt keep him perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. All right, I think you all gathered that. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. Where do you think Elisha was? Was he stayed on God? Was he trusting in God? How else can we explain for the perfect peace that he had 
when this young servant is just frantic and panicking, waking him up, saying, we are completely surrounded. The Syrians have us, and we're done. He stands up and he says, fear not. And he prays, Lord, I pray that you open his eyes that he may see. Perfect peace, even though the servant was panicked. Elisha doesn't panic. He just prays for God to open the eyes of the young man so that he can see everything else besides the army of Syria, that there's an army that has been there the entire time. The means of the miracle was a very simple prayer to God who was already ready to help his children who are in need. Notice number six, the marvel of the miracle. The marvel of the miracle. Look again at verse number 17. So he says, And Elisha prayed and said, Lord, I pray thee, open his eyes that he may see. And the Lord opened the eyes of the young man, and he saw. And behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire round about Elisha. And there it was. There it was. The proof that what Elisha said back in verse number 16 was true. And what he said back in verse number 16 was, Fear not, for they that be with us are more than they that be with them. The young man was finally able to see what had been there all along, but what could only be seen through the eyes of faith. Psalm 34, verse 7 tells us, The angel of the Lord encampeth round about them that fear him and delivereth them. What could the Syrian army really do against the horses and the chariots of fire that God had stationed there to protect his own? Absolutely nothing. Nothing at all. And notice, finally, number seven, the meaning of the miracle. The meaning of the miracle. Now, regardless of how long a person is saved, they are still going to struggle to see what is always there in front of them. We go through seasons where our faith is strong, where we're enjoying God's peace. But it doesn't take much for us as believers to get rattled. It's different person to person, but each of us have our moments. When we find ourselves much like the young servant, the young, prof, or the young, the young servant to the prophet here in verse number 15, crying out, Alas, my master, how shall we do? We look at a situation that we're in, we deal with a problem, and we're crying out to God, wondering, Well, what am I going to do about this? Because in a moment of desperation, we only see our problems and we fail to see God's solution. Many believers are living far below their privileges, failing to see the wonderful provisions that God has made for them. They're walking too much, using only the eyes of their flesh and not using the eyes of their faith. So let me encourage you to pray for your fellow believers. Pray that God would open their eyes that they may see. Pray that God would open our eyes so that when we're faced with trouble, we too might behold that they that be with us are more than they that be with them. Whatever the problem, God has promised to be with us through all of it. And he is all-sufficient and all-powerful to overcome whatever it is that stands before us. So my prayer for myself and my prayer for each and every one of us is to open our eyes, Lord, that we may see. Would you bow with me in prayer at this time? Heavenly Father, we thank you for the opportunity to be in your house. We thank you, Lord, for the opportunity to hear from you. And I pray, Lord, that what we've looked at here this morning is convicting but at the same encouraging. 
Lord, I know that from every single one of us, we deal with issues where we fail to see you first. And Lord, in many instances, we are just like that young servant who, who saw the problem but didn't have eyes to see that you were there in the middle of all of it. I ask, Lord, that you would help us with all the situations that come up, Lord, favorable, unfavorable, that we'd remain stayed on you so that we might have that perfect peace that was demonstrated through your servant, Elisha. I ask, Lord, that you would help us and encourage us as the days go by with whatever it is that Satan may try to do or any obstacles that may stand before us to remain faithful and stayed on you and to continue trusting in you from day to day. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.